In case you didn't notice, there's a lot of imagery in Zechariah chapter 3. A lot of complexity. Perhaps someday, if I preach through the entire book of Zechariah, we'll explore the complexity in greater detail. But this morning, I, I want to highlight simply the main thing that this chapter is getting across and explore its meaning. The main thing that happens in this chapter is this. Joshua, the high priest, was clothed in filthy garments. Verse 3. God takes off those filthy garments and clothes Joshua with pure vestments or clean clothes. Verse 4. That is the central image of this chapter. And that image and its meaning will be the full scope of our study this morning. So we're not going to get into all the other details this morning. We're going to focus in on that central image. And we need to begin with some background info. Because without this background info, it's going to be hard for us to properly understand what's going on here in this section. Zechariah's ministry occurred around 520 B.C., which means that many of the Jews who had gone into exile in Babylon had returned, but not all. It also means that the building of the second temple had been started, but had not yet been completed. So the Jews had, to this point, experienced a partial deliverance from the judgment that God had brought upon them, namely captivity in Babylon. But the Jews had not experienced a full deliverance as yet. Several decades earlier, the Babylonians had besieged Jerusalem. Eventually the city fell and was for the most part destroyed. The temple that Solomon had built was razed to the ground. And most of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were carried away to exile in Babylon. At this time, many of those exiles had returned, but not all. And they had begun to build a second temple to replace the first one, but that second temple had not yet been completed. So that's the context in which God's prophet, Zechariah, ministers. And Joshua was the high priest anointed to serve in this second temple that was being rebuilt. So these are the characters here. There's Zechariah, there's Joshua, there's uh, this talk about Jerusalem, there's this talk about Jerusalem being plucked from the fire. It all has reference to these events. The conquest of Jerusalem, the exile in Babylon, the partial restoration that has happened, and Joshua is the high priest appointed to serve in the second temple. Now the high priest's role was to represent the people before God. And his clothing was designed to represent, to reflect rather, various aspects of that role. So, one thing about the high priest's clothing is that he had a breast piece, a breastplate, something to, that would be hung over his chest, which had 12 stones on it. And on each of the 12 stones was engraved the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the high priest, as he carried out his ministry in the temple, 
would have the names of the people of God written over his heart. He was bringing them before God. Even his clothing represented something of his function. To represent the people before God. To bring the people before God. And there were very specific instructions from God about the appropriate manufacturing and the appropriate wearing of the priestly garments. God did not simply say, find some nice clothes and carry out your duties in some nice clothes. God was much more specific than that. In Exodus chapter 28, we read uh, some very specific instructions concerning the manufacturing of the clothes that the priests were to wear. In Leviticus 16, for example, you could find other passages. There are some instructions about the wearing of those garments and how it is that the priests were to put them on and take them off and so on and so forth. But a number of places in the early portions of the Old Testament, particularly the first five books, we read about very specific expectations and very specific instructions for the priest's clothing. And with these meticulous instructions having been given by God, with this specificity outlined about the type of clothes that the priests were to wear, you can imagine that it would be absolutely unthinkable to wear dirty garments while serving as a priest. If not just any clean clothes will do, but it must be very specific ones that God has appointed to be worn in a very specific manner. If not just any clean clothes will do, then certainly no dirty clothes will do. The right clothes were a major part of the priest's preparedness to enter God's presence. If they were improperly clothed, they were implicitly forbidden to enter. God didn't just say, it's ideal if you wear these vestments. It's preferable that you wear these vestments. No, as it was with all of God's worship, he was very specific about the manner in which he wanted to be worshipped. God has that prerogative to decide the terms upon which we are permitted to approach him. And the priests were to wear these garments, manufactured according to God's instructions, donned and put off at various times according to God's instructions in the proper manner. If the priests were improperly clothed, they were implicitly forbidden to enter God's special presence in the temple. Jewish tradition states it this way. While they are clothed in the priestly garments, they are clothed in the priesthood. But when they are not wearing the garments, the priesthood is not upon them. That was the understanding of the Jews in later years that without the priestly clothes on, they're not even priests. This is, I think, gets at the seriousness 
of the type of clothing that the priests would wear. With the correct clothing on, the priests were prepared to enter God's presence. Without the correct clothing on, they had no business approaching God. So that's some background info that helps us make sense of what Zechariah sees here in this prophecy. Or pardon me, here in this vision. Let's think now about the vision itself. The vision that Zechariah sees of Joshua standing before God. Matthew Henry notes that Zechariah would have been accustomed to seeing Joshua regularly by virtue of their respective roles as prophet and priest of Yahweh. However, in these interactions, Zechariah would have seen Joshua merely as he appeared before men. In other words, these guys would have rubbed shoulders in their daily lives. They both lived in Jerusalem. Zechariah functioned as a prophet of Yahweh. Joshua functioned as a priest of Yahweh. Doubtless, they would have had interactions. They would have seen each other. They would have known one another. But Matthew Henry notes that Zechariah, in these interactions, saw Joshua merely as he appeared before other men. And Henry goes on to say, If Zechariah is to know how Joshua appears before the Lord, it must be shown him in a vision. And so it was. So it is shown him. Zechariah sees how Joshua appears before the Lord in this vision. Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. We don't have time to go into this in detail, but throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord often speaks in the first person as the Lord receives worship, etc., etc., and so a great case can be made that this angel of the Lord is himself the Lord is a divine being and so Zechariah stands before the Lord and with this background info in mind imagine the horror Zechariah is improperly clothed Zechariah is standing before God in filthy garments verse 3 Zechariah, or pardon me, Joshua rather, is standing before God in filthy garments. Joshua, as a representative of the people of God, is standing before God in filthy garments. Which means that as God sees his people, his people are clothed in filthy garments. Recall just how important the right clothing was in order to stand in the temple before the Lord. Here is Joshua, and in him, all whom he represents, standing before the Lord in filthy garments. The filthiness of their garments is symbolic of their sin. This is clear from the angel's commentary on the removal of the filthy garments in verse 4. We read that the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua he said, Behold, 
I have taken your iniquity from you. Behold means look and see. So as the angel of the Lord removes the filthy garments, he says, look and see. I've removed your iniquity from you. So here then, the meaning of this is that here is Joshua. Here are God's people whom Joshua represents standing before God clothed in sins. Clothed in iniquities. Here is Joshua, the high priest, wearing nothing but sin. Nothing but iniquity. In the presence of the God who Isaiah saw in his temple, high and lifted up, whom the angels could not bear to look at, but covered their faces and cried out, Holy, holy, holy. Before that God, Joshua the high priest stands. And in him, all whom he represents, covered with sins, covered with iniquities. And thus Satan steps in to accuse. The word translated in chapter 3 and verse 1 as Satan could also be translated the adversary. Or the accuser. That's what Satan does. He accuses. He acts as an adversary to the people of God. Listen, though Satan is an accomplice to the wicked, Satan is no friend of the wicked. You might say he's like a rat or a snitch, whatever word you might use, who when all are caught in the act, is quick to turn his back on his fellow criminals, throw them under the bus, to talk, to give information in order that they might suffer and he might have his lot come out a little bit more favorably. Though Satan is an accomplice to the wicked, he's no friend to the wicked. He's not on your side. So here he is pointing out to the thrice holy God the sinfulness of God's people. It's a bad situation. Not only are God's people improperly clothed, but someone's there to point it out. Imagine the embarrassment and the dread that Joshua would have felt before Yahweh with only iniquities and sins draped over his body and Satan calling attention to it. I've had a few instances of inappropriate attire in the course of my pastoral ministry. Once I had driven about eight hours or so to a fellow pastor's house I arrived late on a Saturday night in order to preach at his church the next morning. And to my embarrassment, when I dressed for church the next day, I had dress pants, collared shirt and tie, but no dress shoes. And the ones that I had worn for the drive were a ratty, worn out pair of shoes, uh, slip-ons with frayed edges and the fabric was splitting in places. It was just before the church service, there was no time to run out 
and get a new pair. My friend's shoes were far too big for me. I told my friend, and to my relief, he just laughed and remarked that my feet wouldn't be visible in the pulpit anyway. <laughs> Another time, while dressing to officiate a funeral, I was horrified to realize that I had put on some weight and could no longer close my pants. There was no time to run out and buy a new pair. And of course, you can't mix and match colors when you're officiating a funeral. Thankfully, thankfully I was able to close the distance with a pin and then cover the pin over with my belt. But I spent a few stomach-churning minutes thinking about the awful prospect of having no appropriate clothing to wear for the funeral as the officiant. Though these are relatively small and somewhat humorous examples, they are examples, however, of the symbolism employed in this passage. There are times when we are expected to dress a certain way, and when being inappropriately dressed is a big problem. And you could probably put yourself in my shoes as I gave you those couple of examples and imagine just some awkwardness, some embarrassment, even attached to those examples. But first of all, neither of those examples, notwithstanding the gravity of a funeral, neither of those examples compares with standing before God. Because these are examples which have only to do with the embarrassment of being seen by men, not as you ought to be. Neither of those examples speaks to being seen by God, not as you ought to be. Not having the right shoes for a church service was a problem for me that day as a preacher. Not having the right pants for a funeral was a bigger problem. But being clothed in iniquity and sin when appearing before a holy God is an infinitely bigger problem. Yet scripture says that it's our common problem as human beings. As God's people had no righteousness of their own then, so God's people have no righteousness of our own now. None of us, clothed in our own righteousness, are prepared to appear before God. As the prophet Isaiah says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And yet it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Each and every one of us in this room, every one of us, without exception, whether you consider yourself a Christian or whether you don't, each and every one of us, us has the appointment spoken of in Hebrews. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Each and every one of us has an appointment with God. It's an appointment of far more gravity and significance than any appointment with a person or a group of people ever could be. And listen, 
we are woefully underdressed. None of us are prepared, clothed in our own righteousness, to appear before God. The scripture says that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Do you think then that He will not care that the very fabric from which your garment is woven is sin? Do you think that God will be unconcerned to see iniquity covering you from head to toe? Or do you think He will not notice? First of all, He is the omniscient one. He's the God who sees. When I stood behind that pulpit with the wrong shoes on, He knew. When I officiated that funeral with a pin holding my pants together, God knew. He will know what it is that you are clothed with on that day that you appear before Him. And not only will He know as the omniscient one, but there will be one there to point it out. Satan the accuser. It is His function. It is His role. It is His nature. As one who hates the people of God. To bring our sins ever before our eyes and ever before God's eyes. If, Josh, if Zechariah had seen a vision of you or I as we appear before the Lord, it would have been the same. The same kind of thing as he saw here of Joshua. Zechariah would have seen a vision of you or I in filthy garments before the Lord. With Satan, the accuser, testifying to God of our sin. And if you think that being inappropriately addressed, inappropriately dressed for a funeral would be horrifying, think of how much more being inappropriately dressed for that dreadful meeting, that dreadful appointment with the Holy God would be if you were clothed in iniquity and sin from top to bottom. It's little wonder that the Scripture says that on the great day of the Lord, people will call out to the mountains, fall on us. To the mountains, fall on us. And hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. If you get nervous when you're walking through a warehouse and you see large stacks of pallets beside you, maybe leaning even, and you get a little nervous about those things falling on you, imagine the mountains in their immensity and in their grandeur shaking and rumbling at that final trumpet when Christ descends from heaven with the cry of an archangel and the horror 
that must be in your heart and in your mind to want those mountains as they quake and as they split and as they crack and the rocks begin to slide down to desire to be buried. Let God see you. Lest you be found inappropriately dressed. Lest the wrath of the Lamb be poured out upon you. What Zechariah sees of Joshua, by extension, what he sees of you and I, men and women, the people of God, gathered up in this representative, dressed in dirty clothes before God. This is truly a horrifying vision. It may not strike us that way at first when we read it. We just think, oh, his clothes were a bit dirty. Not a big problem. Throw him in the washing machine when he gets home. But when we consider what these clothes meant and what they represented, when we consider what Zechariah is seeing by way of symbolism, it's a truly horrifying vision. And yet, how does God respond to Joshua in this vision? Look at verses 4 and 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. The Lord doesn't dispute the fact that Joshua's clothes are dirty. It's not as though Satan says, look, his clothes are dirty, and God says, no, they're not. The Lord responds, not by saying that Joshua's clothes aren't dirty, but by rehearsing his love for his people. In verse 2, the angel of the Lord replies to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The Lord said, Yes, his clothes are dirty, but I have chosen him. Yes, his clothes are dirty, but it is my purpose to pluck him from the fire. Yes, his clothes are dirty, but far be it from me that I would throw him back into the fire for my purposes, for my people, are good. My purpose is to save from the fire. My purpose is not to send this brand back into the fire. I pulled him out. I have chosen these my people to be mine, to belong to me, to rescue them. So his clothes are dirty. Well, then I'm just going to have to give him new clothes. That's what goes on here. That's how the Lord responds. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove those filthy garments from him. To him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. 
The Lord doesn't dispute the fact that Joshua's clothes are dirty. He doesn't refute Satan's accusation. Instead, he gives Joshua clean clothes. And if dirty clothes represented iniquity, then clean clothes represent righteousness. So in response to Satan's accusations of the sins of God's people, God clothes His people in righteousness. That's the vision that Zechariah sees in verses 1 to 5. Then in verses 6 to 10, the angel of the Lord explains the significance of this exchange of clean clothes for dirty ones. And as we look at this last half of the chapter, again, as I said at the beginning, we're not going to go into every detail, but we're going to maintain this narrow focus on the central image, the exchange of clean clothes for dirty ones. So here are the questions that we'll seek to answer in the last half of this chapter. Whose righteousness does God clothe Joshua with? When will the exchange of dirty clothes for clean ones occur? And what will be the result of that transaction? With these questions in mind, let's move from the vision itself to considering the significance of the vision as the angel of the Lord explains it. So the first question, whose righteousness does God clothe Joshua in? Or we could ask another question as we try to narrow down the possibilities. First, Joshua's own righteousness or another? Well, to say that the Lord takes Joshua's unrighteousness and clothes him with Joshua's righteousness doesn't make any sense. Joshua's there, clothed in his own unrighteousness. Joshua has no righteousness to speak of. It's his own unrighteousness that he's already clothed in. So for the Lord to remove Joshua's dirty clothes and clothe him with clean clothes doesn't really make sense of this vision. So it must be another's. So God takes the dirty clothes of Joshua off of him. The unrighteousness that Joshua has brought to the table, he takes off of him. And remember that all of God's people are gathered up in this image, in this figure of the high priest. So God takes all of the unrighteousness of His people off of them. And then in clothing Joshua, He's not just just putting their own clothes back on them. That wouldn't really make sense of the vision. He's not taking their garments and changing their garments and washing their garments and putting their garments back on. He's taking off dirty clothes and putting on clean clothes. So Joshua, and by implication, all of God's people who are represented in this vision by Joshua, have their own unrighteousness taken away and are clothed with the righteousness of another. Then whose righteousness? Verse 8 answers this question. Someone called the branch. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned 
Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. It goes on toward the end of verse 9 to say, And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. It's by means of this person who is called the branch that God will remove the iniquity from his people in a single day. Now, let's just back up a second. The meaning of the phrase, you and your friends who sit before you are a sign. Let me just explain that because it'll help the passage make a little more sense. When he says you, he's speaking to Joshua. And when he says your friends who sit before you, he's speaking of the people of Israel. They sit before him in the sense that they are represented by him, that he's in authority over them, that they are taught by him and so forth. They're called his friends in order to highlight his not only representative unity with them, but his unity of essence or his unity of he's like them. He's not so different from them. In other words, it's not as if all the people of Israel are clothed in dirty clothes, but Joshua is there in clean clothes. But you and your friends, you're all alike, is the sense of what's being brought out here. As the book of Hebrews says, the priests under the old covenant had to offer sacrifices first for their own sins, and then also for the sins of others. So God's dealings with you and your friends, Joshua, is referring to him and the people whom he represents. And what God says then is that they are a sign. They're a picture. They're pointing away from themselves to something else. And this brings to our minds or ought to bring to our minds Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5 where we read that the high priest and his ministry serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, the way that God deals with his people, Israel, throughout the Old Covenant, through the priesthood, through the sacrificial system, through the tabernacle, through the temple, through the lambs that were slain upon the altar, the way that God deals with His people through all of these things are copies and shadows of heavenly things. They are signs pointing away from themselves to a greater reality. And it's no different in this situation. So basically what the angel of the Lord is saying in verse 8 is this, if I may paraphrase. What just happened to you is a picture of something else that's going to happen. And what just happened to you is a picture of something else that's going to be brought about by this person called the branch. Who is the branch then? The branch is the Messiah. We read throughout the Old Testament of a person who will come. He will be the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. He will be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
He'll be a son of David. We read many things about him. We read his work described. I think it might have been D.A. Carson who said, in the Old Testament, we learn what the Messiah is. And here is no different. We're not given a name other than this mysterious name, the branch. But we're told that one is coming who will remove iniquity from the land in a single day. The Old Testament gives us the contours, the boundaries, the definition, the shape of the one who is coming. What he will be like, what he will do, what he will accomplish. This passage is no different. It speaks of one who will bring about the reality foreshadowed by Zechariah's vision. One who will remove iniquity from the land. One who will take away the dirty clothes of God's people. And one who, by implication, will put on clean clothes upon God's people. The branch is the Messiah. The branch is just one more Old Testament way of describing someone who is coming to save. Someone who is coming to deliver. D.A. Carson, I think it was, who said, the Old Testament tells us what the Messiah is. The New Testament tells us who the Messiah is. This seed of the woman, this seed of Abraham, this son of David, this branch will be born in Bethlehem, who will bring those in darkness to see a great light. The New Testament tells us who the Messiah is. Of course, it's Jesus. Of course, it's Jesus. He is the one who will remove iniquity from the land, remove iniquity from God's people, take off the dirty clothes from God's people, and by implication, put clean clothes upon God's people. He is the one who will do it in a single day. And what was that day? It was the day that the Messiah, the branch, carried His cross to Golgotha. It was the day that they mocked Him and spit upon Him and beat Him. It was the day that they nailed Him there. It was the day that that sign was hung above Him, the King of the Jews. It was that day when, as I preached on a couple of weeks ago, It was that day that He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. It was on that day, according to Zechariah's vision, that the dirty clothes were taken from off of God's people and clean clothes were put upon them. Now, of course, that's not to say that No one in the Old Testament was saved by Christ Jesus. 
quite to the contrary. Everyone who was saved in the Old Testament was saved by Christ Jesus. And that's not to say that we need not repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ Jesus for our sins have already been dealt with so many years ago. That's not to say that all those whom God has chosen are already justified before they turn from their sins toward Christ Jesus. Properly speaking, God applies the benefits of the cross before He applied them beforehand, pardoning the sins of Old Testament saints for Christ's sake. And God applies the benefits of the cross after the fact as all of those whom He has called to Himself come in faith and repentance. But in God's mind, it's settled. There are those who are clothed in dirty clothes, but whom He has loved with an everlasting love, whom He has purposed to save. There are those who are brands plucked from the fire. And in a single day, that day when Christ Jesus bore the wrath that all of those people deserved, in that single day, their sins were taken from off of them, in a sense, in God's eyes, in God's reckoning. And Christ's righteousness was given them, in a sense, in God's reckoning. There is a sense in which we are saved when we place faith in Christ Jesus. But there is a sense in which we were saved 2,000 years ago as Christ Jesus bled and died upon that cross. Jesus took off of us our dirty clothes and He put on us believers His clean clothes. This is what Zechariah's vision was a sign of. This is what Zechariah's vision foreshadowed. The Gospel. The Gospel is not that God has a washing machine. That though you have been imperfect and got your clothes a little dirty, God can clean you up. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel is not a Gospel of infused righteousness. Imparted righteousness. The Gospel is not that with God's help you can become good enough for Him. The Gospel is not that God will clean you up. The Gospel is not that God offers you a fresh start and you can wipe your slate clean and then achieve enough righteousness throughout the rest of your life that God will now accept you. None of those things are the biblical gospel. The gospel is not that God has a washing machine. The gospel is that God has a new set of clothes for you. The gospel is that though you, in and of yourself, could only ever stand before God clothed in dirty clothes, 
clothed in transgressions and sins. The gospel is that God in Christ, God in this promised branch, will take your dirty clothes from you and put clean clothes on you. That's the gospel. You have soiled your clothing by a life of sin. Each and every one of you. Me too. We have not loved God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have broken each and every one of the Ten Commandments. We have soiled our clothes. We have no clean clothes to appear in before God. But Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. In the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. You know why He was born under the law? To answer the demands of the law. To weave together some clean clothes that you could be clothed in. Christ Jesus obeyed for any and all who will come and trust in Him. In order that those who realize their clothes are dirty, who realize that they need clean clothes, can call out to God and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Take my dirty clothes from off me, this sinful life that I have lived. And don't just give me a fresh start. Give me new clothes. Give me that righteousness of Christ. Give me His obedient life. Count His obedient life as if it was mine. Clothe me in His clean clothes. Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law in order that we might receive adoption as sons. The gospel is that Christ Jesus and His life are the only clean clothes available. You trust in your own righteousness you will stand before God and have that horrible, gut-wrenching feeling that you are improperly dressed on Judgment Day. And it will be a lot worse than showing up to a funeral with the wrong clothes. You will wish the mountains would have fallen on you. But you trust in Christ Jesus. You trust in His righteousness, His obedience for you. And you will find that like Joshua at the end of that transaction, you look down and see clean clothes draped over your body. And what will be your feelings on that day? What will be the result of that exchange of dirty clothes for clean? Look at verse 10. In that day, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This phrase is reminiscent of the prosperity of the people of God under Solomon's reign, as recorded in 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 25. Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. All the days of Solomon. 
Solomon's reign was the golden age for Israel. And Zechariah draws on that image to describe the blessedness of having our dirty clothes taken off and having clean clothes put on. Zechariah draws on that imagery to describe the blessedness of those who are recipients of the branches saving work. As a result of Messiah's work, as a result of the branch, all of God's people shall dwell in safety. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. As we'll sing later in the service then, it is well with my soul. Yes, we have problems in our lives. Yes, we have challenges. But these are temporary. And one day, because of the branch, because of His clean clothes, all we who have trusted in Him, who have experienced that great exchange, His robes for mine, one day, each and every one of us shall have every tear wiped from our eyes. And we will dwell with God in that place which knows no pain or suffering. And in the meantime, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Our sins, not in part but the whole, are nailed to the cross. The branch has taken away the iniquity of the land in a single day. If you're not yet trusting in Christ Jesus and in His righteousness alone, you need to realize that you are wearing dirty clothes in God's eyes. As I said earlier in the service, if Zechariah saw you appear before the Lord, he'd see the same thing as he saw with Joshua. Zechariah would have seen you in dirty clothes with Satan, the accuser, at hand. Listen, if you're not trusting in Christ Jesus, you need to be really clear about this. And I'm telling you this because I care. You cannot meet God's standards even by your best efforts. If you become the person that you have always wanted to be, if you develop the self-control and discipline that you've always wanted to develop, on that last day, you will still be found covered in iniquities and sins. <clears throat> you will one day realize, too late as I did with the shoes and the pants, that you don't have the right clothes, that you're underdressed. And on that day, you'll want the mountains to fall on you in order to be hidden from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Listen, unbeliever, why not have dealings with the branch? Why not have dealings with this one who has removed iniquity from the land in a single day? Why not confess that your clothes are dirty and ask God to do for you what He did for Joshua in this passage. What He has promised through this vision to do for all of God's people. Take your dirty clothes off you and put clean clothes on you. 
unbeliever, why not have dealings with Christ Jesus now? Come to Christ even today. Christian, believer in Christ Jesus, hear this reminder of what the branch has done for you. Hear this reminder of the Messiah's work, taking off your dirty clothes and giving you clean ones in its place. Remember your justification and rejoice. Neither boast in your perceived worthiness, for you have none, nor despair of your unworthiness, though you are unworthy. God is not looking at your righteousness or lack thereof anyway. He's looking at the righteousness of another. He's not looking at that set of clothes he took off you. He's looking at that set of clothes he put on you, Christian. You're clothed in the wool of the spotless lamb. You're accepted for his sake. Experience the relief, believer in Christ Jesus, that Joshua would have felt when at the end of this transaction, he looked down and saw that he was in clean clothes in the presence of God. Christian, that is what the Messiah, the branch, has done for you.